King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and kept him safe. While he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias's daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought him his, platter, his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. This is God's word to us. Good morning. Uh, my name is Dave, one of the pastors here at Frontline, and we're going to continue in, in our study of the Gospel of Mark. Um, as usual, I want us to pray together, me for you, you for me, and um, then, we'll, then we'll dive in. So let's, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage, and we pray that you would help us see and understand and, and see Jesus, you and the good news that is actually here for us. Father, we want to see your heart and spirit. We ask for your help to have, um, as Jesus has so challenged us again and again through this book, ears to hear. So help us have open hearts and open ears for all that you have for us this morning. And Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, if, uh, if you're a student, let me see your hand up. Like, if you went back to school in the last couple weeks... Anybody? Just a few? A few? All right. Yeah. Okay. If you were like a, 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 in a graduate school of some sort, like Laney, all right, Patrick, there's a, a few in the back. Um, who, who, so you're, you're in law school. How many hours are you taking? 14. 14. How many hours are you taking? 14. Anybody taking more than 14 hours in like a graduate program? All right. So you two are tied for the smartest people in the room. I'm going, to give, I'm going to give you both a book that you can read in three years when you're out of law school. Um, how about this? I'm going to give you, Lainey, a book called Discovering the Good Life by Tim Savage. It's really good. Come and get it. And then, Patrick, you'll like this. This is called, do you have this? Faith for Exiles, um, Five Ways for a New Generation to Follow Jesus in Digital Babylon. That sounds Very riveting, nice. right? Yeah, JJ <laughs> likes that book. Um, <laughs> so, point, uh, point being, 
Um, whether, you know, you're in kindergarten or you're in law school or anywhere in between, um, I wanted to kind of celebrate students today because if you're like, if you're like me, you find yourself in a place where either like, you know, to yourself or, or if you're so bold to your teacher, um, you're going to ask the question from time to time, why on earth do I have to learn this, right? What's the point of studying this? And we can feel that way when we actually come to this passage of Scripture in Mark this morning. Why is this in here? Why does John Mark, who has written this book that seems to move so fast and be so action-packed, he comes to this story about the death of John the Baptist, and he, he slows way down. Why is he giving this story so much attention? What's the point? Why are we learning this? What does this have to do with my life? Second Timothy uh, Chapter 3, verse 16 and 17 says this. Paul writes to Timothy, and he says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This book, Mark, several weeks ago, we, we kicked it off, and, and at the very beginning, Mark tells us about itself as a gospel. It says it's, it's a story that's the gospel of Jesus Christ the Son of God. The gospel means good news. And so the claim is what Emily just read for us, this sad story, this tragic story, this strange story that seems like a diversion from the story of Mark, Mark thus far, that it's a story that actually contains good news about who Jesus is. And it's for our benefit. It's to instruct us, help us Learn some things that are true about God. Learn some things that are true about ourselves to warn us, to correct us where we need it, to prepare us to do good work that God has set before us and called us to do. See, this story isn't in Mark just for historical information to be passed on. This story is in Mark for actually personal soul transformation for us. This story is about a man dying, and it's a story that can actually help us live in the way that God's called us to. So let's take a look at it together, and we're just going to work our way through it. And we're going to just take it in three points. We're going to talk about the confusion that the story begins with, the collision we see in the story, and then the caution there is for us. So first, confusion. The story begins with confusion, specifically confusion about Jesus. Look at verse 14 again. Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. And some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he's Elijah. And others said, he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But... When Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. So Steve, last week, he, he taught, and, and one of the things Steve uh, just brought us in on and, and, and preached so well was this awesome moment where Jesus sends out his disciples and just they, they, they expand his ministry in a way. They carry his, his ministry and a miraculous things happen. Good news is preached. The kingdom is proclaimed. People who are sick are healed. People that are demon-possessed are delivered. 
And, and so as these disciples are sent out, word of the impact of that ministry is beginning to spread, and that news has actually reached the halls of King Herod's palace. And so our story begins with King Herod hearing about the ministry of Jesus. And he is grappling with the question. His whole court is grappling with the question. And the question is, who is Jesus? And people always grapple with this question. When we're confronted with the works and the words of Jesus, the the thing that we have to grapple with is, is the question, who is he? Every thinking person must must come to an answer to this question. He's the most significant man in the history of the world, had more impact on, on earth than anyone who has ever lived. And so we have to ask the question, who is he? It demands an answer. It's a question that each and every one of us have to come up with an answer to, and it's a question that Herod was grappling with, and there is a right answer, but Herod has the wrong one. Herod's not going to ignore Jesus. He's not going to brush him aside, but he has a a conclusion that he comes to. The man I beheaded has been raised from the dead. And so we get insight in this moment as to the reality of what's happened to John the Baptist, that Herod killed him, murdered him, took, took his head. And so this man, this king, Herod, who's now riddled with guilt, he's speaking out of a, 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 a life that's a guilty life. He feels like he has blood on his hands. Indeed, he does have blood on his hands. And so he sees and he hears of the ministry of Jesus. And out of that guilt and a, and a superstitious spirituality, he's saying, that's John the Baptist who I beheaded, he's been raised. So what has Herod done? What happened? What led to this point? That brings us to our second point. There was a collision, a collision of two men that were really in complete contrast to one another, John the Baptist and, and King Herod. And John the Baptist, he, you know, if, if you listen to Jesus, this is what he said of John the Baptist in Matthew eleven eleven. Among those born of women, there's not arisen any greater than John the Baptist. Just out of the words of Jesus himself, out of the mouth of Jesus himself, that's what he says about John. That's a pretty significant compliment from the Son of God. John the Baptist was a miracle child, not like in the the way that Jesus was from a a virgin birth, but he, he had parents, Zachariah and Elizabeth, that were too old to have kids, but God intervened and gave them a child miraculously in their old age. And he, he would grow up to be, in so many ways, the last great prophet in Israel, like the prophets of the Old Testament that proclaimed the promises of God and, and, and called people to repentance and proclaimed that a Savior was coming. The New Testament, in a real way, kicks off with John fulfilling the role of one final prophet to say, hey, God is faithful, like we sang this morning. You need to repent and turn back to God because his promises will be fulfilled. There is a Savior, a King, that will come and save us all. And so he dressed like an ancient prophet. He wore camel hair clothes and a leather belt, and he was a man of intense morality and conviction and a sense of righteousness and holiness. He was a man of of complete conscience and he had a deep soul. 
In, in a real way, he would be like the conscience of, of his nation, of Israel itself. He was the most popular preacher of his day. Thousands upon thousands would come out to hear him preach in the wilderness, in the desert. And so he burst onto the scene to an entire nation with a message of repentance to prepare the way for the, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. And he was, if anything, bold. One time, a group of Pharisees, a group of, of, kind of self-righteous religious elite who thought that they were better than everybody else and looked down and put burdens on other people, they came out to hear John preaching, and, and he sees them, and he says, hey, you brood of vipers, who warned you of the wrath to come? It's like, okay, that's, he was an intense guy. He was scared of no one. Because he was, he was crystal clear about who he was. He would get the question a lot. Hey, who are you? And he would always kind of defer and, and answer that in humility. Who are you, John? And he would say, oh, I'm just like a finger pointing. I'm a light shining. I'm a voice crying. I'm not the groom. I'm just the best man. One moment in John the Baptist's ministry, he actually points to Jesus and he says, he's the one, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It's all about him. He's going to increase. Even though I'm the most popular preacher and have the most impactful ministry of the day, my ministry needs to, to decrease so his can increase. I'm all about making a way for him and preparing the way. See, he understands who Jesus is, and in light of this fact, and as a result, he has immense courage He's not afraid to call anyone to repentance, even a king and a queen. Hence, the collision that we see in the story. Because John, in his ministry to call people to repentance, he collides with King Herod. This Herod, his name is Herod Antipas. He's, he's the son of Herod the Great. Herod the Great, part of the Christmas story, is his father, Right? who was threatened by Jesus and, and tried to, to slaughter him. Well, this is his son. And it, we see in the story that he has a new wife, and her name is Herodias. I know it's confusing. So Herod is married to Herodias. And Herodias was, before he was, uh, she was Herod's wife, she was the wife of Herod's brother. And so Herod took a trip to Rome to visit his brother, and he seduced his brother's wife, Herodias, brought her back, and, and they got married. So now she's his sister-in-law slash wife. And John the Baptist, being John and doing what he did, he doesn't shirk away from calling Herod to repentance. We see that in the 18th verse, where John says to him, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And so Herodias, Herod's new wife and his sister-in-law, this is untenable to her. She hates that her relationship's being called out, and she's furious, right? We just imagine her just, just spitting in the court in fury, like, where does this backwood preacher get off telling us what to do? Where does this crazed so-called prophet get off telling me, the queen, and the king, what's right and what's wrong? Our love is love. What gives him the right? He's so narrow-minded. And so Herodias, for deeply personal reasons, because she's nursing this grudge and offense of being confronted with, with sin, she's plotting and dreaming and scheming of killing 
John. And then Herod, for really political reasons, it's not good to have the most famous preacher publicly calling you out. He has John arrested and put in prison in this place called the Fortress of Machaerus. I think we have a few pictures of it. It was an amazing fortress. It's where Herod lived most of the time. And archaeologists today have found caves or, or a dungeon in it with irons on the wall, probably the very place that John was kept in this season. So Herod has had John arrested. And in a, in a strange way, John is arrested in the very basement of the palace where Herod lives. And it's in this place that this strange relationship forms. Two absolute opposites are brought together, and there's this collision of extremes. Herod is a man of the palace. John is a man of the wilderness. Herod is ornate, and John is simple. Herod is a man who, who's a man just kind of a slave to his pleasures, and John is a man who's lived a life of self-denial. Herod's a man of, of politics and wealth and scheming. Jesus called Herod that fox. John is a man of prophetic power. Herod's a man who seems to seek, above all, self-autonomy. And John is a man who, who is submitted to God's will. John is righteous, and Herod is a slave to his appetites. John is a man who's going to lose his head and keep his soul, but Herod's a man who's going to lose his soul, sear his conscience. This is a cautionary story. And it seems sad upon first reading that it's a sad story about John the Baptist. It's not. It's a sad story about Herod. John languished in this prison and something unexpected occurred with these two men that were so different. There's a relationship that develops. You see it in verse 19 and 20. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, it's interesting why, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. Isn't that interesting? Herod liked to hear John. Perhaps at night he would sneak down to, to his prison, or he would bring him up for private conversations. And John would sit drinking water as Herod would have wine. And, and John would, would do what John did. He would call him to repentance. He would say true things about God. I'm sure he was compassionate, but in his compassion, he was honest about where Herod was in life. And, and Herod liked to listen to John. And Herod was afraid of John. Isn't that interesting? That it seemed like Herod had all the power and John should be the one that was afraid, but John isn't afraid and Herod is the one who's afraid in the presence of such righteousness. And isn't that so often how we experience truth and light? Herod is unsettled by the light of God through the ministry of John, yet he's drawn in. His soul is stirred. His soul is softened. He's open to the truth of John's ministry. But it doesn't last. Herodias is looking for a moment to strike. And we see it in verse 21. 
But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. So Herodias, again, in her hate for John, she's waiting for this moment to strike, and then the opportunity comes on Herod's birthday. Josephus, who's this ancient historian, he tells us that these birthdays in Herod's court were like the most depraved bachelor parties, these stag parties. And so Herod has his, his political cronies and his generals and, and leading soldiers, and they get together, and, and they eat too much, and they drink too much, and the party becomes increasingly sensual as the men are stuffed and drunk. And as the party moves late into the night, they begin to demand entertainment, and Herodias makes her move. And a dancer is sent in. And normally this dancer, this dance would have been performed by uh, a member of the heteri. This is like a professional dancer. But Herodias, she sends in her daughter, Salome. And just because this, this verse is cute, uh, just, just quick, it, it's probably covering a multitude of sin. It doesn't go into much detail, but all the commentaries in her agreement that this isn't like a daughter coming to give her dad a cute recital dance. This isn't her waltzing. This is scandalous. This is sensual. This is outrageous because it was, it was totally scandalous for a, ro- a member of the royal family to perform an, an R-rated dance for not only her stepfather but his friends. And Herod isn't embarrassed, and his friends feel no shame. Their reaction to this is delight. They're outraged, and they, they can't get enough of it. And so Herod shows how happy he is with a vow in verse 22. The story says, and the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask of me, I will give it to you up to half of my kingdom. And so what, what's she going to ask for? Is she going to ask for a palace of her own? Is she going to ask for a new ride, a new chariot? Is she going to ask for a, 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 a shopping spree in Rome fitting for a princess? So she, we imagine, runs out of the room, runs over to her mother, Herodias, and asks, hey, what should I ask for? Can you believe this? Anything I want, what should I ask for? And Herodias tells her daughter, you asked for the head of John the Baptist. And so Salome goes to her stepdad and adds her own sick twist on the request and says, I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter. We just get a glimpse of the depravity of this mother-daughter duo, not literally cannibals, but they're, they're ruthless. It's the heart of a cannibal. They want to devour John in delight. And what we see here is that Herod's immediate reaction is genuine grief. The word to describe how he feels is, it, the only other time it's used in the New Testament is to describe Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. The, the grief and the weight that Herod feels is, is real. He's in agony because he knows John is righteous. He knows he's an innocent man, a good man. And he's 
put himself in a, in a hard place. He's made this vow before his, his friends and his cronies and, and his, his wife has these expectations. And yet he cares for John in a way. He's protected John in a way. He loves to listen to John. The ministry of John is actually making a difference in Herod's life. But the tragedy is that he doesn't think about it for long. Because verse 27 tells us what happens. And immediately, the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. And he went and beheaded him in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. And when the disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. So Herod gives John's head to the girl the girl gives it to her mom. Word reaches John's disciples and they come heartbroken and take the body, lay it in a tomb. The other gospels tell us after that, they go to Jesus in their grief. So that's the story. And what do we do with it? Right? That brings us to our third point, like caution. We saw confusion about the identity of Jesus. We saw collision of these two men, a righteous man, ultimately a wicked man. And in it, in the story, there's caution for our lives. What does it mean for us? I think it means this for us. It means we need to take listening to God's word really, really, really seriously. I mean, Herod's soul had been stirred, right? He, he had been intrigued and open to God's revelation and truth that was brought to him through the, the ministry of John. He had heard truth. He had light and life that was within his grasp. And he threw it away because he was afraid of what other people were going to think. The stakes were so high. And he's at this crucible, this, this precipice in this moment. And he lost the most precious thing he'd ever had a chance to take hold of. And Herod is like so, so many people who begin to get a glimpse of the, the truth of God. And they're draw, drawn to that truth. And they're intrigued and, and open. But perhaps people in their life that they're friends with or they care about or even their family get wind of this interest in faith and maybe there's just a sideways look or a, a mocking laugh or a divisive comment or, or even all-out ridicule. And that door in their soul that was open to the truth and the light of God is slammed shut because they're afraid of other people's view of them. And I think there's a temptation for each and every one of us to live lives not God, guided by God's direction, not following the, the prompting and the draw of the Holy Spirit, but, but like a really bad politician who just tests the winds and is constantly pulling to find out what they think, that we can live life in a way, whether it's in the hallways of a middle school or the hallways of a Fortune 500 company, just constantly directed and pushed by the opinions of others and not led by the will of God. See, and we, we, we see in Herod what's at stake. 
We witness the, the, the searing of a conscience, the loss in a real way of a soul. See, the last mention of Herod recorded in Scripture is this, this chilling reality. In Luke 23, the ruling religious leaders of Israel, they've, they've brought Jesus, falsely accused, before Pilate, Roman ruler, demanding that Jesus be killed. And, and Luke tells us what happens again in, in 23. I'll read it for you. Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, we found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payments of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Messiah, a king. And so Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? You've said so, Jesus replied. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests in the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But they insisted. He stirs up people all over Judea by his, his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. And on hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at the time. Now listen to this in verse 8. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform a sign of some sort. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there vehemently accusing him and Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. Dressing him in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. See, Herod, Herod really wanted to see Jesus, to be, to be entertained. In Herod's cold heart, Herod was a king, and Jesus was a court jester there to make him laugh, to show him a trick. How sad. Herod brings Jesus in and essentially says, hey, dance for me, monkey. And Jesus refuses to dance. There's no conscience here. There's no soul left open to God. Earlier when, when Herod stood before John, a righteous and godly man, he had a, a sense of fear and longing. In some sense, he could see that, that, that John was carrying a light, and that light was, was life, and he was a reflection of, of the very thing his soul longed for. And now in the presence of Jesus, the very source of righteousness, the light himself, the Son of God, God, Herod feels nothing, he sees nothing. He's stone cold. And the, the scary reality is that, that we can say that Jesus sees nothing in Herod. Herod plied him with many words, and Jesus doesn't utter a word. He doesn't open his mouth in his silence, as if to say, you didn't listen to John, you're not going to listen to me. Ezekiel 33, 11, God himself says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die? Like Jesus is feeling no pleasure in this moment. He's heartbroken for Herod. Heaven is heartbroken for Herod. 
And this is the true sadness of this story. It's easy to read it and feel so sad about John dying, but the minute John's head came off, he was in paradise. John loses his head and he comes to heaven. Herod takes John's head. And it's a glimpse into where he's headed. He's losing his soul. He's destined for hell. See, it's possible for the human heart to become so hardened that it can stand in the very presence of God and feel nothing. It's possible to reject the prompting of the Holy Spirit so many times that the door of our soul is closed and locked to Christ himself. So if, if you're here today where we started and you're exploring the question, who is Jesus? What does it mean for me? And you feel you've been drawn by God. You feel his, his invitation, his, his love, his, his prompting, his call for you to, to move towards him, to run away from, from everything else that you're putting your hope in and actually find hope in life in the one place that it's found, in, in the grace and the mercy of God. Hey, don't put that off. Don't say, maybe not today, but another time. We don't know if we're guaranteed another time. The love of God calls you. Don't plug your ears to it. Run, ask for grace and forgiveness in life. It is yours in Jesus. And if you're a Christian, there's even still a warning for us here that, that we might not lose our salvation, but we can certainly, in a stiff-necked way, harden our hearts and and refuse repentance. And there's areas in each of our life where God calls us to, to be soft and listen and lay down sin and run to him. And we need to be careful to, to be quick to obey. Because when we're not, that leads us to dangerous places. Listen to God's call on our soul. Let's stand and pray. Father, even in the midst of this sad story, there is a, a foundation of hope. And what we remember is that, that leading up to this loss of John, you were miraculously on the move. And, and right after the loss of John, you are miraculously on the move that, that come what may and come the sacrifices that are made in, in the, the attack of evil on your kingdom, your kingdom will not be thwarted. Your kingdom will not be conquered. Your kingdom is come and is coming. And Jesus, you are on your throne. And so we pray for hope and we pray for help to help us respond to your call and conviction, Holy Spirit, in ways that please you, Father. We pray this, Jesus, in your name, God's people said.
Amen.